Welcome to Opto Sessions, where we interview the brightest minds from the stock market, uncovering their secrets to success. If you're looking for ideas, tips and techniques from the world's best, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. I'm Hayden Brain, editor at Larger Opto, and today I'm joined by investor, financial commentator, former fund manager and author Jim Rogers. Jim is the chairman of Beedlin Interest Incorporated and co-founded the Quantum Fund that famously returned 4,200% over 10 years. Jim is also the creator of the Rogers International Commodities Index and having retired from asset management in 1980, he's penned a number of books including A Bull in China, Adventure Capitalist and Hot Commodities among others. Uh, so hello Jim. Good morning. Hey, no, uh, Good afternoon wherever you are. I'm in Singapore so it's five in the afternoon here. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're early morning uh, in the UK and London at the moment. Um, so I wanted to start the interview by digging into your background a bit um, and just a, an easy question to start with. I wondered whether you could tell us a little bit about your story and in particular how you got into investing. What, what drew you to it? Well, I, I can give you the long version, the short version, but I think the uh, short version, um, I wound up having a summer job on Wall Street uh, in my after my senior year of university, quite by accident. It was mainly because the guy liked me and I liked the guy. I didn't know anything about Wall Street. Uh, all I knew was that something bad had happened there in 1929, and it was in New York somewhere. But I went down, took the summer job, fell in love quickly. I was doing you know, basic research or research assistance in the research department at the time. But I quickly fell in love. I was going to law school and business school and medical school and everything else. I was a confused university student, like many people. Uh, and as soon as I could, I went back to Wall Street. I didn't go to law school or business school or medical school. As soon as I could, I went to Wall Street because it was, I found it was a place that would pay me to do what I loved. And I look back and I know that I loved knowing what was going on in the world, everywhere in the world. And here was a place that would pay me. And they'd pay me a lot if I did it right. I couldn't believe such a place existed. So I, I went to work. Great. Um, yeah, that's interesting that uh, you kind of quickly realized what it was that you wanted to do and what you loved to do. Uh, I'm not sure um, a lot of people come to that realization so early on in their lives. Um, so, so that, I mean, that's, that's great. Um, and I, I guess, um, I wanted to quickly move on then to talk about the current market, um, and to get your thoughts on the current market downturn. Uh, you've anticipated an, an epic market crash for a while. Uh, so is this it? Well, what I have said, uh, before Hayden, uh, and I'm surprised anybody noticed, I said that, you know, in 2008, we had a problem because of too much debt. Since 2008, the debt has skyrocketed everywhere. So the next time we have a bear market, it's going to be the worst in my lifetime. I mean, to me, it's pretty simple. It's like saying the sun's going to come up in, in, in March. Uh, that's the way the world is. People seem to have, first, they, many of them thought I was saying that day or that month. No, I was just saying, I don't know when it's going to happen. But I know that the next one, is going to be horrible, and here we are. Uh, we're having the next one. It's not over yet. Uh, we're going to have some more good rallies probably uh, before it's over, but, but we're before the final collapse. But no, debt. The debt has skyrocketed, Hayden, all over the world since 2008. In 2000, 
eight and nine, China had a lot of money saved for a rainy day. It started raining and they started spending the money and helped save the world. Well, even China has a lot of debt now. There's nobody left to save the world. You know, the printing presses are running as fast as they can everywhere. The head of the Bank of Japan goes to work every morning, cranks up the printing presses, prints as fast as he can. He's now gotten permission to buy shares, stocks. You know, he was buying ETFs and, and bonds. Now he's buying stocks too. You know, you every central bank. I mean, this is absurd. Yeah, so... Um I guess then by continually bailing out companies and, and even national economies, we're, we've just been delaying the inevitable by propping them up uh, and adding the huge amounts of debts that, that you mentioned there. So is that why we'll have a prolonged downturn after a series of, of minor rallies like, like you mentioned? Well, you know, in 2009, they said they're going to save the world and we're going to print a lot of money and add a lot of debt and guard off uh, non-public moments, they would say, well, this is an experiment that's never been done. We hope it works. Uh, and what nuts like me said, it's not going to work. You're going to make things worse before it's over. You should let the system clean itself out. That's what recessions and bear markets are supposed to do. Bear markets are like forest fires. Forest fires are horrible, but they clean out the underbrush and they clean out the, the deadwood and then the forest can grow better. But nobody wants to take any pain anymore. And so central banks for the past 10 years, 12 years, have printed a lot of money. Spent, governments have spent a lot of money. Debt has skyrocketed everywhere. The system never got a chance to really clean itself out like it's supposed to. And so it's just the pressure is building up worse and worse and worse. I mean, I don't particularly like saying this. I don't get any great pleasure out of being right, certainly about this. But this is pretty simple, it seems to me. I don't know why anybody would notice. I guess as a result of all that, then, we're experiencing um, unprecedented levels of volatility. Um, but, and you've referenced a few already, but back, black swan events have occurred in the past. Um, is there learnings that we can take from... Uh, the financial crisis in 2008, for example, uh, in terms of how we uh, position our portfolios and our investments now? Uh, well, the best advice I, and the only advice I'll give you, Hayden, is uh, only invest in what you yourself know a lot about. Don't listen to some guy on the internet uh, on an opto interview or anything else. Only invest in what you know. Because first of all, I make everybody makes mistakes, and second, when things start going wrong, you don't you don't know what to do. You don't know why you bought it in the first place. So, if you want to be a successful investor, don't listen to me or the TV or the internet or anybody. Only invest in what you yourself know a lot about. If I told you you could only have twenty investments in your life, you would be extremely careful. You wouldn't be jumping in and out. You wouldn't be getting hot tips down at the bar, uh, and you would probably be a successful investor. I can tell you what I'm doing, but you shouldn't do it just because I'm doing. That would be I just that would be madness. I just told you, don't listen to me or anybody else. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely see what you mean. So you've really got to do your homework uh, if if we're focusing on the stock market. Then you've really got to do your homework on the equities and the companies that you're invested in before before you take the plunge on everything, Hayden. Everybody wants a hot tip, but hot tips will send you to the poorhouse. If you, you, if you rely on hot tips 
for your investments, you're never going to be successful and you're going to lose a lot of money. The other place you should avoid listening to, among others, are governments. Many people say, well, the government said that's, that has guaranteed poor house. If you get your investment advice or your investment guidance from governments, they are, first of all, they don't know what they're talking about. And second, they lie. So don't bother with governments either. Sure. So moving away from understanding then the specific equities that you're going to invest in, if I just take us back to the stock market, um, as I said, we're seeing unprecedented levels of volatility. Um, is it a good time then to invest? And what I mean, what I mean by that is I've, I've heard you reference uh, again in another interview, this idea of buying panic. Um, and I assume what you mean by that is uh, there'll be some depressed uh, valuations out there. So, so now might be a good time, again, assuming you've done your homework on the equity that you're looking at, uh, to, to take advantage of that lower valuation. Is, is that fair? Well, I have recently bought a couple of, bought a wine company in, in China. I won't tell you the name. Uh, I bought a, a, a shipping company in Russia. Uh, there's some things that are very, very, very depressed. Um, I hope. I hope they're depressed. That's why I'm buying them. Uh, and I hope I'm seeing opportunities. But I'm not rushing out and, and throwing, uh, mortgaging, mortgage, mortgaging the farm yet. But I am starting to buy. I do. I fully expect this to get much, much worse before it's over in the next uh, year or two. But I have started buying a few things when I see serious panic. Sure. And um, so, uh, and we've we've touched on it already. But I'm keen to dig into your uh, investment philosophy. Any kind of underlying principles that have governed your style since you moved into money management. And um, so, first of all, would you describe yourself as a contrarian investor? Well, given that what I usually invest in is something that, that is ignored and is cheap and is struggling, uh, that by, by the definition of a contrarian makes me a contrarian. I would not say that, though. I would say, oh, I just try to find things that are cheap, uh, that where something is changing. But by definition, Hayden, if it's cheap, that means people are ignoring it for whatever reason and it's down for whatever reason. And so people say, oh, well, he's a contrarian. He's buying that cheap bankrupt company. I'm buying the cheap bankrupt company because I think I see it's going to be a good investment. I'm not sitting around saying I'm going to be a contrarian. I'm looking for opportunities. And often I have found over the decades that if you find things that have collapsed, you're often going to make a lot. Of, I mean, Venezuela is a perfect example right now. I cannot buy anything in Venezuela because I'm a, I'm a citizen of the land of the free. And in the land of the free, we're not so free often. But other people can buy Venezuela. It's been my experience that you buy a disaster or catastrophe. Usually, in a few years, you're going to make a lot of money. I'm not allowed to right now because I'm a citizen of the land of the free. Yeah. I completely understand that. Um, and uh, something else that, that's come across in previous interviews, and uh, we run a, a previous interview with you uh, that we'll publish in our in our next magazine, issue eight of Opto as well. So uh, we'll be able to dig into this stuff there as well for people to look out for. Um, but you, you've referenced in the past this idea that markets are uh, intrinsic, intrinsically um, uncertain and uh, so are their outcomes. Um, so is that key to uh, your investment philosophy then? 
Yes, yes, yes. Uh, if for no other reason that you would, it will make you understand that there's risk and that you have to consider all sorts of possibilities. Uh, early in my career, I, I shorted uh, six stocks because I'd had a great success. I waited for market rally, had a big rally. I shorted six stocks. Uh, within two months, I was wiped out. I'd lost everything. Uh, and that's partly because I didn't understand markets well enough. I didn't have much experience. Uh, I just assumed everybody knew what I knew. I will tell you they don't. You better take that into consideration. And Hayden, the six companies I shorted, all six of them went bankrupt within two years. But I lost everything first because other people got hysterical and wild and thought the, the bear market was over and blah, blah, blah. And so I got wiped out. So you have to, especially you have to be prepared for things going wrong or going different from what you think might happen because the world is always with us. You know, in 1980, I shorted oil. Well, the next week, Iran and Iraq went to war. Oil didn't go down, I assure you, when Iran and Iraq went to war. So all sorts of things can happen, and they will, and you better assume that something strange is going to happen. So, yeah, that, I mean, that makes complete sense. And in, in a way, then, do you have to, uh, you reference it at the top of the interview as well, do you have to have a constant uh, appreciation for uh, macros, you know, uh, kind of fundamentals around the globe? Do you have to at least be across uh, kind of key trends all the time? And I guess the reason I ask is because we often speak to uh, technical analysts, technical traders that that block out the the news, block out the fundamentals. Um, would you would you say that you that actually you need to focus on those sorts of things, and you need to be across the news? Well, certainly the way I invest, there's no question. But let me just go back, uh, even though, uh, and, and I did cover when Iran and Iraq went to war. But you know, if I hadn't, I still would have come out okay because my basic fundamental thesis was that the oil was in a glut, been a bubble in oil in the '70s, and it was all going to go to eight. And it did, but, but when they, when they went to war, I, I covered anyway. So I really didn't have to know anything because I was right. My fundamental thesis was right. And usually I don't pay too much attention. I usually don't know too much about what's happening to, to my investments and don't want to know because it confuses. It will confuse me. I'll get cluttered up with what's happening in the market. But Hayden, everybody has to have their own style. I knew a couple of guys on Wall Street who were just phenomenal short-term traders. They didn't have to know if the world had come to an end or not. It wouldn't have mattered. They still would have been buying and selling, buying and selling, and making money. And sometimes, I mean, one of these guys barely knew what the companies did. He, but there were there were like a hundred companies that he knew the symbols, the stock patterns, trading patterns, and he traded them every day. He barely knew what they were doing. They didn't care. Didn't have to. So everybody has to have their own style. Um, my style, to the extent that I have found one, was to find something cheap with change taking place and try to own it for years. I'm lazy. Buying and selling and jumping in and out is hard work. Sure. Um so, uh, and I think we've we've touched on it um, in places, but I wanted to dig into this idea of re reflexivity. Um, 
it's something that I've seen sort of attached to your name, rightly or wrongly, uh, when when doing research before this interview. Um, and, and the theory asserts that price impacts fundamentals and then those fundamentals are subsequently uh, change expectations and influence the price. Uh, so this constant uh, cycle and reinforcing sort of theory, I suppose. Um, so first of all, I wanted to know whether that is representative of uh, your investment philosophy. And then secondly, I wanted to move on whether we could reconcile that uh, overarching idea with such a fast moving and changing environment as, as the one that we're in currently. Um, so yeah, f first of all, uh, could is, is it fair to say that ref reflexivity, um, at least in part, governs your investment style? Uh, Hegel, you may remember Hegel, he was a couple of hundred years ago, that's more or less what Hegel said, said, you know, there was a thesis, an antithesis leading to a synthesis. You remember Hegel? Uh, well, that's more or less what Hegel said, but he said it 200 years ago. And yes, what happens uh, causes other reactions, and those reactions cause future reactions, and that leads to consequences. So yes, 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 yes. That's whether it's Hegel or reflexivity or whoever you want to ascribe. Karl Marx. Karl Marx said some of the same kind of stuff. Uh, wherever you want to ascribe it, it is accurate. Uh, I'm a little lazier than that. I try to, and what I have found is that, you know, when you find something that's right, usually more and more good luck comes along uh, because things go right and then something else goes right and then something else go goes right. Uh, that's the way bull markets work and individual bull markets. I mean, if you find company XYZ and you're convinced it's, so it's right, you will probably find that over the next few years, things continue to go right. Is that luck or is that reflexivity or is that uh, Hegel? Is that the thesis? Uh, who cares? I have found that it usually works that way. And likewise, when you're short something, I've also found that often, you know, when things start going wrong, if you're right about an industry in decline or a company in decline, <laughs> more bad things happen. It's the same thing on the downside. It's, it's Hegel on the downside. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, so that uh, at least that was an interesting comparison, then, if not completely reflective of uh, of your uh, inv investment philosophy. Um, that's that certainly taught me a lot. Um, and and I, I want to go back then to your uh, your buying low and selling high strategy, then, and ultimately looking for value uh, when valuations are depressed and and, and markets uh, uh, are turning down. Um, I wondered, um, and a lot of our um, listeners will be interested in whether it's possible to systemize that that strategy. Um, you talked about luck there. I assume you can get lucky on various occasions, but is it possible to consistently replicate this strategy, this this thinking of of buying low and selling high? Uh, if you're willing to do your research and your homework, I mean, none, none of this is easy. I wish it were. Uh, yes, it can be. Uh, People who are willing to do a lot of research and put the time in and, and learn, you know, you have to know what a balance sheet is. You have to know how they work. You have to know a few things. But if you're willing to do your research, 
uh, I suspect, yes, and you're willing to do the work. It's not easy, you know, like me, I'm lazy now. I don't work nearly as hard at it as I used to, but it, it certainly can be done. It's, it's not some magic. Uh, it's, it's simple supply and demand, and it's the way the world always works. Some people are always on the rise, and some people are always on the decline. Sure. Um, so I, I guess having covered uh, in part the, the top level sort of rationale for some of your thinking and, and the, the philosophies that, that sit behind your investment strategy, I wanted to dig into uh, specific sort of investment techniques um, that you've uh, deployed throughout your career. Um, but first of all, uh, what would you be looking for in, in an equity, in a stock, in this market environment? You know, is it a, a robust balance sheet, a small amount of debt? What, what sort of factors are you looking for now? Well, that's a good place to start because through the, throughout history, bear markets teach us over and over again, if you've got a lot of debt, chances are you're not going to survive. And if you do survive, you're going to get whacked very, very badly. There's going to be a lot of problems. So which is a lesson that every bear market since the beginning of time has taught us, learn it again, Hayden, write down, low debt, be careful of over-indebted companies. Uh, yes, uh, and other things you, you, I am looking, I mentioned that I bought a ship, Russian shipping company recently. Well, it's been smashed. It's a company that's got very, had very, very serious problems. Uh, it may still have some. It wouldn't be selling as dirt cheap as it is. Uh, and no matter how the world turns out, if I'm right, this stock's not going to go down much more. And coming out of this, was gonna, it's going to do very, very well. One of the things I have learned, Hayden, is that when you, when everybody's doing badly, if you can find people that do well, when everybody else is doing badly, after the bad stretch, those stocks or whatever are going to skyrocket because people will say, ah, recession proof, growth stock, smart man. You know, all the buzzwords that they'll say, they will look at company X and say, oh my gosh, look at that. Half the world collapsed, and Company X did extremely well. So those stocks are the ones that do ex the very best in, in the next bull market. Uh, if I'm right about this particular company that I, I mentioned, uh, that's, that's going to be that kind of thing. Coming out of this, first of all, it's been smashed because it's got, it had problems. And if I'm right, coming out of this, everybody's going to say, oh, my God, look at that. And it's going to go through the roof. But don't think I don't make mistakes, Aiden. <laughs> I make plenty of mistakes. <laughs> yeah, as we all do. Um, so uh, I, I saw recently Buffett was uh, or has invested heavily in airlines. And I guess this is sort of one of those depressed sectors or, or, or industries that uh, he sees as overly devalued at the moment due to the market downturn and one that will uh, rocket the other side of this downturn and when markets do rally. Um, so I just wanted to know from you, which uh, or kind of where do you see the most value right now? Is there a specific sector or industry that you could well, highlight? Well, anything to do with travel or transportation or tourism, uh, as you know, has been destroyed. I mean, I live in Singapore. The airport's closed. Airports aren't airplanes aren't flying. People aren't going to the airport. So you can buy airport stocks, airplanes. I mean, you, you can look at, I should say, because they're all down a great deal. 
hotels, restaurants around the world, tourist sites around the world. They're, they're, nobody's going. They're all closed. I live in Singapore. Singapore is essentially closed down, especially the airport. So, but if one has to stop, I stop and think about it and say, well, are we going to go back and all use buses again in the future? Are we all going to take boats again? Are we all going to take the boat to London or are we going to fly again someday? I'm of the view that we will all be flying in airplanes again someday and that airports will be open and that there will be large amounts of money made in transportation, tourism, travel, if you get it right. Sure. Um, and I guess uh, to uh, look at the other side of these sorts of investments, when you're targeting distressed industries uh, such as such as airlines, for example, uh, there is an element of risk there, I suppose, um, and that short-term trend could could continue. Um, so I wondered whether there are any tips you could give to our listeners on how to avoid the, the bad bets. Um, again, I, I imagine it's, uh, it's crucial to do your homework. Well, yes, I, I I said to you before, I like to find things that are depressed uh, that are cheap because then even if I'm wrong, I probably will not lose so much money and I might not lose any money other than just wasted, wasted time. Um, so that's one of the reasons I like to buy things that are cheap or depressed or ignored. But when you're thinking, I mean, I, I see that Warren sold his, he bought Delta, I think he turned around and sold it. Uh, I mean, I, I guess he realized, who knows, that, oh, this is going to take a while to recover and that it's going to take a while for travel and profits to come back in the airline business. Uh, I imagine that's his thought process. So one has to think it all the way through just because I sit here and say to you, oh, Delta Airlines is really cheap uh, and it's going to be saved. That does not mean you should rush out and, but maybe you should, I don't know. But I, I'm just saying it's a lot more complicated than just saying, oh, this is cheap and people are going to fly airplanes again. Uh, you have to make sure the balance sheet is okay. There are lots of things you will have to check when you make any investment. Uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Oh, gosh, I wish there were. And I wish there were, I wish we could have luck. Wouldn't I be rich if I'd had good luck? And the basic point I'm trying to make is, hey, the more research you do, the more homework do you do, the luckier you're going to be. Yeah, sure. Um, that makes complete sense. And are there any, uh, you mentioned a strong balance sheet there. Are there, are there any other um, kind of key fundamentals that you'd suggest looking at when you're, when you're doing that company research? Well, back to supply and demand, you will have to, if you look at, you find company X and you say it's got a strong balance sheet and you're, you're keen, but it's not that simple. You've got to look at everybody else in the business too to find out what they're doing. Maybe you find company X is great, but then you realize, oh my gosh, there's six other companies just like it and they all have strong balance sheets and they're all building new factories. Uh, that, that could lead to a short sale, not, not going long. Um, I remember I was once short Apple computer on that basis because everybody was adding so much capacity that even though Apple was fantastic, there was too much capacity coming in and people couldn't buy as many blah, blah, as everybody was building plans for. So you have to think it all out. You have to look at everybody else. You also have to see if there's a change coming, some technological change that's going to put you out of business. You know, uh, 
horseshoes went out of business because automobiles came along. You got to make sure you you've looked at everything. Sure, um, and uh, you've met you've kind of referenced a couple of uh, your investments, uh, not by name, of course, but you've referenced uh, some Chinese, I think, and, and Russian equities throughout the interview. Um, so, do you usually favour emerging markets over developed? No, I, I don't. I know people have these terms. In these categories, but I don't. I just look at them. I remember once somebody wrote an article about me and called me the Indiana Jones of finance or something like that. And I was I was surprised because I just looked at markets. I didn't care where it was, whether it was developed, undeveloped, or anything else. I just looked at markets as a market. I didn't have a category, uh, and so. At the moment, you know, the, the Chinese stock market is down 60% from its all-time high. Well, that's to me, is something to note. The Russian stock market is hated. Everybody hates the idea of investing in Russia. Uh, the United States stock market made an all-time high in February. Well, February, Hayden, was two months ago. Uh, it's been a long time since the Chinese market made an all-time high. So I prefer to scurry around looking in places where other people are not looking or maybe where there are reasons for things to be depressed, like Venezuela. I mean, I cannot do anything in Venezuela, but I wish I could. Yeah, you mentioned that before. Um, I, w I wondered then what what makes the Venezuelan uh, stock market or companies within Venezuela uh, interesting to you at the moment? Well, it's been ruined. <laughs> the country's been ruined by, you know, what, 20, 25 years ago, this dopey ar army guy had a coup and thought that he was the new Karl Marx, or I guess he thought he was the new Fidel Castro, and he set out to ruin the country. Um, and he has ruined the country. Their currency has become worthless. Uh, very few people, few people can afford anything. I mean, people are starving. Literally, people are fleeing the country. I mean, if you sat down and just listed the hallmarks of a country that's a disaster, <laughs> these are some of the things you would see, no matter what the country. Uh, and in this case, you know, the new Fidel Castro ruined the country. He's dead now. This guy's dead now, but he's been replaced by one of his, his lieutenants who thinks the same way. And it's great. They've ruined the country. It's not going to last forever. No. Now, if I had bought Cuba after Fidel Castro came, I would have lost everything. So these things can go on forever. I happen to think, though, in the case of uh, Venezuela, it's not going to go on forever. Venezuela times in, in the last couple of hundred years has been one of the most successful Latin American countries. There are enough people there who know a different way to live. And so I suspect it will come back. So that's why I went there. I was hoping to find a way to invest. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, um, but I guess, uh, and you alluded it, alluded to it there at the end of your uh, description about the Venezuelan situation, that it's not just noticing that a, 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 a country even is in a, uh, a bad situation. It's understanding that there is the uh, possibility for growth. The, the, there are certain... Um, facets about a country and its economy and its stock market that suggests, although yes, it's depressed right now, it will grow. Um, I mean, you, you described a few um, interesting points about the Venezuelan situation then. Was there anything about the, uh, well, now Zimbabwean si uh, situation that, that kind of caused you to come to the same conclusion? 
Well, first, back to Venezuela. Venezuela has neighbors. Cuba didn't have any neighbors, you know, except that it was an island. So they had neighbors, but they were an island. So in Venezuela, the people can cross the border or borders and see prosperity and see reality and will not sit down and say, oh, this is fantastic. North Korea has had closed borders for decades. And so, but even now in North Korea, because of the technology, everybody in North Korea realizes, oh, wait a minute, those guys were lying to us. You can't lie to people anymore. It's very different to lie to people anymore, which is one reason I'm optimistic about, about North Korea. Uh, but Zimbabwe has huge natural resources of every kind. Uh, I mean, as I say, it's all been ruined by Mugabe. I mean, he totally ruined the place um, and stole. He stole and ruined and, and huh. I don't want to go off on on all the things Mugabe did wrong because the poor man is dead now. But you can do do your own research and see Roy. But there were huge assets there, agricultural, mining, everything close to South Africa, which was a very still is a very prosperous con country in in uh, Africa. You know, there are many reasons to be optimistic about uh, Zimbabwe. The asset is there if you can find proper management. It's like Russia. I was bearish on Russia for decades. I first went in 1966 and said, this will never work. But there are huge assets there. And now, at least in my view, the management has changed. Something happened in the Kremlin a few years ago. And now the assets can have value again. But for a long, long time, I was very, very pessimistic about, about Russia because of the management. I, I recently, a lady asked me, said, well, oh, uh, Mr. Roger, you ever invested in Russia before? I said, yeah, in the late 90s, I was short the ruble. <laughs> she said, no, no, that's not what I meant. Uh, no, I'd never been long Russian my whole life. Uh, but now I'm, I think the management has changed. The assets are there. It's hated. It's cheap. So if it is cheap and if there's change, which I think there is, I might have a success sure um so i mean that that comprehensively sort of uh argues then for for some investors uh, there is opportunity out there despite the current downturn depending on your time horizon and your your appetite for risk of course um but would you uh, suggest investors keep uh, a significant element of their portfolio in in cash right now well, I happen to have, but I, I'm very bullish on the U.S. dollar, uh, so it is both cash and an investment for me. Uh, I have learned that in times of turmoil, people look for a safe haven, and many people think the U.S. dollar is a safe haven for historic reasons. It's not. It's not, Hayden. The U.S. is the largest debtor nation in the history of the world. <laughs> My gosh, they're adding to it faster and faster. But looking around, there's very little else that people will consider a safe haven. So I happen to own a lot of U.S. dollar cash at the moment. But it depends on, I mean, there are things doing well right now. If you know what you're doing and you know what, I mean, the company called Zoom, are we speaking on Zoom? If you, uh, if you know about Zoom and know what you're doing, I mean, what I'm told, the price of Zoom has gone through the roof. So there are people always making money, uh, no matter how bad things are. And if you know one of those things and understand it and know what you're doing, then go to it. Yeah, sure. And 
um, I've I've spoken to people that that are looking for those opportunities um, as a result of the change in human behaviour at the moment. We're all working from home and and uh, adjusting to that. And as a result, we're using different pieces of software like Zoom, as you mentioned. Um, you know, we're using more internet than we usually would. Our, our payments in terms of online payments, uh, that kind of whole process has, has changed a bit and we're seeing different trends there. Um, is that something you're doing at the moment? Are you looking um, at the way human behaviour is changing at the moment, looking for opportunities as a result of that? Or, or are you just ignoring it? No, of course, I'm always, whether I like it or not, because of who I am, I'm always looking to see what's going on. And if there's an opportunity, what happens throughout history and happening again, you know, we are being forced to try things. I mean, education on the Internet has always been there, but people didn't pay much attention. Uh, But now it's accelerating. My kids having school, both of my kids are having school every day on the Internet now. If this hadn't come along, yeah, someday everybody would have education on the Internet. But this is forced an acceleration. Likewise, uh, if you look at things like uh, home delivery, well, everybody's being forced to have home delivery now. Home delivery has been out there for a long time and it would have evolved. But now it's being we're all being forced to learn about it. And it's accelerating because of the current situation. Sure. And so uh, I'm conscious that um, you've been generous with your time already. uh, And I wanted to cover more specifically the the, the quantum fund and your um, investment management career um, in in, uh, kind of greater detail. So if if we could move on to that, um, I I read somewhere, and again, you can correct me if this is wrong, um, you had $600 in your pocket when you launched uh, the quantum fund. so uh, it was just interesting to me to kind of understand why you decided to take that leap and and why then? Well, I wish I could give you some uh, very exciting reason, but we were doing it. Uh, this was back in the late 60s, and we, we worked for a brokerage firm, uh, managing it as a hedge fund. But then in Washington, they changed some regulations so that you couldn't do that anymore. So we had to leave. We had to go off on our own. And so we went off to a small office, two partners, one one secretary. Uh, I think we had 12 million U.S. dollars in the room with us when we when we went out, were forced out, uh, and off we went. And fortunately, uh, it, it turned out to be successful. Sure. Um, and you were able to long or short any asset class, um, if, if I've understood correctly. So you, you adopted quite an unfettered uh, strategy and un, unfettered approach is is that right? Yes, um, and it, what was a little bit surprising, I didn't didn't have much perspective at the time. I just assumed everybody would do things like that. I remember once early in my career talking to some guys about buying the Danish Krona. They all left the room. They thought, "This guy, who is this kid? He's nuts!" You know, I just assumed everybody was interested in assets all over the world, both long and short. But in those days, especially most investors, even in New York, only bought shares listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Even the over-the-counter market, which is now Nasdaq, was frowned on by many people. So, no, I fortunately I didn't I didn't I didn't go to a fancy business school where I was taught to only buy shares on the New York Stock Exchange. 
I, I wanted to do everything and we did it. Not just me and my partner too. Yeah, sure. So um, that, I mean, that seems straight away, uh, kind of right from the start of your career, then you, you weren't, you, you, you were particularly sort of um, not narrow in focus. I mean, you wanted to explore uh, assets, equities, uh, FX, commodities across the globe, and you wanted to be able to long or short them uh, wherever you saw, val- saw value, I suppose. And so it's interesting that um, that wasn't the norm at the time, because obviously for someone uh, like myself uh, that, was, that was born in the 90s, um that at least feels quite normal to me and, and a natural way to set up a fund of of the quantum funds nature but at the time then that that wasn't normal that was that wasn't the norm it was very strange it was very very strange i will tell you a story i was once at a party a bunch of yuppies uh and it was 1974 and the bear market was raging, and we were, and I was speaking to some lady, and uh, she said, "Oh, you're on Wall Street. Things must be terrible." And I said, "No, no, no. Uh, things are great. I'm short." And <laughs> she looked at me, <laughs> and I could see, "What's wrong with you, goddamn fool? I can see you're short. What does that have to do with things being great on Wall Street?" Well, see, nobody knew what selling short was. Very, uh, very few people. I mean, I was with a bunch of Ivy League. Uh, yuppies most of whom worked in finance uh but even they they had very little concept of what selling short was selling short u.s stocks if i told her about the danish crone or something i'm sure she would have thought i was nuts um so uh that again then fits with uh, a mindset that's coming across in this interview definitely that uh you were quite happy to to go against the grain um and even in setting up the quantum fund with um six hundred dollars in your pocket as i mentioned um you know did the, did the prospect of, of failure enter your mind um was that was that ever ever a thought process for you but first of all when i went to wall street i had six hundred dollars it was a little later that we started the the quantum fund no of course it, it entered my mind in fact i back to that 74 bear market when i met that lady uh it, during that same time I went to my college reunion, uh, and I, I said to myself, gosh, it's our 10th reunion. I said, I'm going to be the first guy to go bankrupt. I'm going to be the first guy to fail because there was a stretch there where we weren't doing very, very well at all. And we came through the year like heroes, but it, it didn't mean every day was a hero day. And I remember going to the reunion and saying, well, I'm going to be the first person from this class to lose everything. Fortunately, I didn't, but uh, yeah, I thought a lot about it. It's not fun when you lose everything, Hayden. No, I, I don't imagine it is. Um, and uh, well, I guess pointing then to the success, I mean, it, it paid off. You um, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, you you achieved a, a 4,200% return over 10 years for the quantum fund. Uh, so what was key to that success? How were you able to uh, maintain such consistent uh, and impressive returns? Well, uh, we used a lot of leverage for one thing. Uh, 
which if we'd gotten it wrong, you would never have heard of me. Uh, so we use leverage, lots of research. I always did a lot of research because I loved it so much, investing all over the world. There, in those days, there were many opportunities in the world because very few people were looking at I mean, we shorted the pound at one time in the 70s. Well, most people didn't, never thought about shorting the pound. But these things just weren't done. So there were opportunities that arose because people weren't thinking and looking at many, many other things. I mean, now they, you know, they have 100,000 29 year olds on their computers right now, figuring out whether they should be long or short currencies or stocks or Venezuela. You know, but in those days, most people didn't know where Venezuela was, much less that it had a stock market. Yeah, sure. And um, so if I can put you on the spot a little bit, what uh, it, could you uh, or would it be possible to pick out a best investment during during that that 10 years or just a favorite perhaps? Uh, I think one of them would be oil because, well, uh, yeah, <coughs> oil, because <coughs> I remember having lunch with a guy my age uh, who went to the Harvard Business School and was very proud. I told everybody I did not go to the Harvard Business School or any business school. And I was explaining to him why we were long oil, a lot of oil and natural gas, the fundamentals for it. Uh, and about two months later, the Arab-Israeli war broke out and the Arabs imposed the boycott, blah, blah, and the price of oil skyrocketed. And I remember bumping into the guy and he said, you really were lucky. I said, what the hell are you talking about? Lucky. I explained to you exactly what was going on in the supply demand situation with oil and natural gas. I explained why we were buying these things, why drilling rigs were developing short supply, et cetera, why reserves were running out, et cetera, et cetera. I said to him, you know, OPEC met every year since 1960 and declared a moratorium on selling oil and the market laughed at him because there was too much oil. But I explained to him, that's all changing now. And he said, I was lucky. <laughs> that's why it's one of my favorites. You know, he had done all this extensive work. It was certainly against the, the normal conventional wisdom. Uh, but the reason I remember so well is because the guy said you were lucky. Even though I had explained every chapter and verse of why it was going to happen, uh, so that's one that I remember, but but I'm sure there are plenty of failures too. Yeah, I, my first wife, she was a big failure. That was no, that was not the 70s; it was the 60s. <laughs> so, um, well, you mentioned failures there. Then, um, could you uh, highlight uh, a worst investment or, or one that particularly uh, sticks in your mind? Well, I mentioned shorting oil in uh, 1980 uh and the next thing i knew oil uh, iran and iraq went to war i assure you the price of oil didn't go down hey <laughs> when two of the largest oil producers in the world were suddenly at war with each other uh, that's one that sticks out i could uh, there, there are plenty of others don't worry plenty of other failures but despite those failures, uh, as, as we've mentioned, uh, you achieved uh, incredible success um, over, over your time with the Quantum Fund. Uh, so I just, I just wondered to sort of um, jump ahead to, I believe, 1980. Why did you decide to uh, retire? What, what was kind of the reason for, for leaving the fund and, and kind of taking up this? this you know? I, I, had actually, I had actually decided a, a year or two before because 
you know, I always wanted to have, and I kept, I always told people I was going to retire when I was 30, by the time I was 35. I mean, it was just teenage boy garbage. But I used to tell people that. I told them in my 20s. This was just bravado, bravado based on nothing. But I, I was 35. We'd had great success. I'd made money. Uh, I wanted to have more than one life. I always wanted to have more than one life. I didn't want to wake up at age 85 sitting on Wall Street in front of a computer. So I, I said I was, I was going to leave. But then we went through a very, very uh, successful period when everybody else was losing a lot, lot of money. And it was so much fun. So I decided to stay on for another uh, – I started to stay on, I said, for another year or two. But then I tasted it. I tasted the idea of leaving and going and starting adventure. I wanted to have, I wanted to go around the world on a motorcycle, believe it or not. Uh, and so I packed it in and set out to try to get permission to go around the world on a motorcycle, which, of course, was absurd in 1980 with the Iron Curtain, Soviet Union, Red China. It was ludicrous to the idea that you could go I, uh, you could go around the world on a motorcycle, but it wouldn't be a real trip as far as I was concerned because I wanted to do the real thing, uh, Russia, China, etc. So I set out to try to get permission, and here I am. Yeah, Still out of work. And uh, I, I think I read that you've you've uh, you've done that again with with your wife, I believe, um, or, or maybe it was a shorter trip. But certainly, you you travelled a lot of the world uh, for a second time. Um, again, pointing to that sort of insatiable uh, desire to to see new things and kind of experience the the globe um, that you've that you've had from from the start of your career, I suppose. Yeah, you know, in the 80s, uh, a woman wrote a book about me, and she talked about how I was had this insatiable, this her words, insatiable desire for adventure, because I kept telling her about how I wanted to go around the world on my motorcycle, etc. I did go around the world on my motorcycle, got in the Guinness Book of Records for what that's worth, but it wasn't enough. Uh, I wanted to see more. It was two years. The woman I was with always wanted to go home. Uh, so I decided, well, I'm going to do it again, only I'm going to do it really much longer, more extensively. The turn of the millennium was coming up. I knew that nobody had ever gone around the world at the turn of the millennium. And if they did, they hadn't written about it, hadn't put it on the internet. So I decided I'm going to do it again, only I had done it in a car. So I decided I was going to do it in a sports car the second time. And the second time was three years. First time was two years around the world, so I spent five years driving around the world. Wow! Yeah, I can I can think of uh, worse ways to spend five years, uh, certainly. So I think that's a nice place to uh, end the main body of of the interview. Um, uh, but I just wanted to finish on, uh, I guess, a light-hearted way to to end our chat. Um, I've got some quick fire questions. So uh, you can answer these in as little as one sentence or even one word, uh, if you like. Uh, but the first one is, uh, in your opinion, what is the top mistake investors make? Buying. People buy, they don't know what they're doing. Here, I got a hot tip. I assure you, if somebody listens to one of your programs, Sally or Joe is going to say, oh, buy X. And people are going to go buy it. They don't know what they're doing. People should not invest unless they know a lot about what they're doing. Most investors lose money, Hayden. And the reason they lose money is because they buy. They don't know what they're doing. Somebody whispers to them and they say, oh, my gosh, I got a hot tip. 
or somebody whispers to them a story and it sounds good and they buy it. They don't know what they're doing. Sure. So number two, then, where do you go for your investment insights, uh, your your financial news? Opto. <laughs> of course. Um, so number three, then, what's the most memorable moment from your career, if you could pick just one? In my career, my investing career. Yes. Well, I probably when I when I decided to, uh, to re- retire and I, I got the check. Those were the days when they still had checks. I got the check. I took pictures of the check, uh, went down, put it in the bank. Uh, I guess that, that was a pretty memorable, pretty memorable point because at the time it was a lot of money. Uh, certainly still is a lot of money to me, but at the time it was a huge amount of money. Uh, that's, probably, that's probably the most uh, memorable time. Sure. Uh, and if you could uh, speak to yourself at, at the start of your career, what would be what would be your top tip for your younger self? Uh, go to China, uh, learn Mandarin, work in the financial markets and learn Mandarin. Great. And the, uh, the last one then, um, just to get an insight into your day to day life, what, what gets you mentally ready? What gets you set up as part of your morning routine? Well, my morning routine is pretty simple. I've got a 12-year-old daughter. I get up at 6 in the morning to take her to school because because I have to, because that's when school, you know, we have to be at school by quarter to seven or whatever it is. Um, so that's my morning routine is my, my 12-year-old daughter getting her to school. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Thank you very much, Jim, for kind of revisiting those questions. Um, but I think that brings us to the end of the interview. Okay, thank you, Hayden. Go wash your hands. (laughs) Will do. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest to you. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during a trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new podcasts, stock reports or events from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. Until next time.